Peace to you. Welcome back to the Naked Truth and thank you for joining me. We're going to start a new book tonight. It's the book of Second Chronicles from what we call the Old Testament. We're going to begin with chapter 1 and verse 1. If you want to read along with me, let's begin. Verse 1. Now Solomon the son of David was strengthened in his kingdom and the Lord his God was with him and exalted him exceedingly. So a couple of things are that. The people we're talking about are Solomon and David. Those are son and father respectively, of the kingdom of Israel. David's the same, uh, David and Goliath, David, Solomon is his son, the wisest man in history, in, at least according to the Bible. And um, and uh, notice there that Lord, his God, it says there, Lord here is in all caps. So generally that means it's being translated in English to Lord from the word or name, and it is here also, Jehovah or Yehovah, however you prefer to pronounce it. Nobody really knows. It's supposedly God's sacred name, so you aren't really supposed to be pronouncing it anyway, according to most Orthodox branches of the religion Jesus was born into, but that's another point altogether. Uh, but these are the people we're talking about, and it's basically a transfer of uh, power from when David was king to now his son Solomon being king. Verse 2, and Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the captains of thousands and of hundreds, to the judges and every leader in all Israel, the heads of the father's houses. So this is basically a State of the Union address by the new king to the people. Verse 3, then Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place that was at Gibeah, for the tabernacle meeting with God was there, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness. So now they've headed to this area, Gibeon. That's the same area, if I recall, where there was a sort of a Sodom and Gomorrah uh, narrative there, where one of the men was about to be gang raped. And uh, instead of being gang raped, he threw his wife out there, his old lady, his girlfriend, his concubine. He threw her out to the crowd and let them rape and molest and murder her instead. Well, they didn't quite murder her. They just gang raped her. And abused her so that when she got back home, because they just let her go at the end of abusing her all night. And that's according to the narrative graphic, I know. Sorry, I hope it doesn't trigger anyone. Um, but it's um then he they let her go, and then so when the morning dawns, she makes it back to her house to her good old husband or master, as they're called when they're not a wife, when they're concubines. And uh he didn't seem to even care. She died there on the porch, and all he had to say to her was get up. <laughs> as if he was so valiant and defended her, but he didn't. She ended up dead. He chopped her up and sent her body parts throughout all the region. So that was a story just worse than Sodom and Gomorrah, at least from the details. And yet Sodom and Gomorrah gets all the headlines because pop culture attaches homosexuality, homosexuality to it and uses it as something to control and herd the people into a certain belief system while they ignore the other parts of Sodom and Gomorrah, like the incest and the impregnating of uh, a man with his two daughters, ignore all of that um, and focus on the homosexual aspect of it. And then ignore the Gibeon story and all together where the same sort of thing was happening. And the place didn't get burned down with fire and brimstone from heaven at all. Instead, the people that took it into their own hands to uh, avenge, I guess if you want to call it that, um, what happened to 
not the woman. They were offended at what happened to the man's property, his concubine, his woman. So they weren't really upset about her being abused. They were upset about the man's property, the woman, being mistreated and killed, basically, uh, is the story in a nutshell. We went through all that already. If you were with us before, you could look back on it. Just do a search for Gibeon if you want. I'm using the blueletterbible.org website. Just do a search there for Gibeon. It'll pop up every instance of the um, word Gibeon or any other word you want to search for. Um, and you can see the narrative yourself there and see just how scandalous it was and kind of um, outrageous. But that's what we're talking about here and who we're talking about. So, and the high place is what the place where the people go up to in an effort to get closer to God, it seems to be the way it, um, they do it, but it's not dedicated when these high places to any one particular entity at all. In fact, it seems to be considered a great sin for the people to keep going up to those high places. Verse four, but David had brought up the ark of God from Kerjath Jerim to the place David had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it at Jerusalem. So as always, please forgive me if I mispronounce any of these, it's talking about now where David moved the Ark, same Ark of the Covenant, same Ark referred to, or at least um, referenced in Raiders of the Lost Ark, that movie. It's the Ark of the religion of the people that had supernatural powers. And it represented a replica of the um, um, scene, I guess you would be the, the only word I can think of for it, of how it is in heaven or in the divine realms. There's God on a throne with angels flanking the throne and their wings spread out covering the throne so that you can't see who's on that seat, that mercy seat, that throne. And so the Ark of the Covenant is a, a man-made replica of that scene. At least that's the way it's described. Although preachers will tell you angels don't have wings. Some of them will, even though it says it right there, the cherubim have their wings spread out over the seat. So, um, and then they'll just deflect and go to the one single episode at the beginning of the book of Ezekiel, chapter one, where it describes what we call a UFO. And they'll conflate all of that. And in my opinion, confuse all of that to keep people intrigued and tuning in to try and figure it out. Um, just my opinion. But this is the people we're talking about and where we're at. Verse five, now the bronze altar that Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made, he put before the tabernacle of the Lord, Solomon and the assembly sought him there. So um, when it says they sought the Lord there, that's basically the same way you might go to church trying to get a response from God, get closer to God, figure it out, figure out what it is God would have you do. It's the same way they would approach the Ark of the Covenant. And it was sort of coveted. People would, it was protected. It was, um, then eventually it was uh captured by enemy forces. Um, but right now, it's still in possession of the Israelites. And they're talking, what's being described here is the new place of worship, the bronze altar, where people are going to make their sacrifices and inquire of God because the first temple hadn't been built yet. That's what Solomon is up to or is about to be up to. Verse six, and Solomon went up there to the bronze altar before the Lord, which was at the tabernacle meeting, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. So when it says burnt offerings and a thousand of them, it's talking about what we call barbecue in modern times. It's taking an animal, slaughtering it, and roasting it um, in the 
for the religion sense, religious sense, it was to atone for generally sins or to say thank you for help or whatever it was that it was being offered for. But what it was, was animal sacrifices, uh, birds, uh, cows, goats, uh, many different things could be all offered there on the altar. And there was all sort of blood ceremonies that were going on. And they were said to be forever. Um, and yet preachers will tell you, no, it was done away with in the New Testament because Saul says so, because Paul says so, that all of those blood ordinances were done away with. But according to what we, when we read them, they're supposed to be forever. Just like the circ uh, circumcision is supposed to be a, a covenant forever. And so many of the other things are supposed to be forever. And yet religion will say, no, you're not supposed to do that anymore. Even though they also say it's the Lord who gave you the forever commandment to do it. So make sense of it how best you can. Verse seven, on that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, ask, what shall I give to you? So the way it's written, it makes it seem like because Solomon offered so many burnt sacrifices, so many burnt offerings, a thousand burnt offerings, that that's what impressed God to make God show up for him. Um, at least that's the way it reads. But we know that's not necessarily the case because before the religion of Judaism or Catholicism or even the tenets of Christianity arise in the Bible, we read about other people who weren't any of those religions at all. At least one person with the Balaam and uh, Balak narrative where he was able to get on-demand visits from what's, who's described as God by killing just a few burn animals, making a few animal sacrifices and get an appearance from God on demand. Not once, not twice, but at least three different times. Um, so it's not really necessary that all those animals have to die to get an appearance from God if you're going to believe what it's written. But that's what Solomon did. And maybe it was so impressive. Maybe that's why God decided to show up for him and let him ask his heart's desire. Verse 8, And Solomon said to God, You've shown great mercy to David, my father, and have made me king in his place. So now Solomon is um, starts out what it is he wants with, um, um, hmm, how, what kind of statement is that? I guess an acknowledgement of the fact that God uh, has been present in David's life and shown him plenty of mercy, even though he's done things like adultery and murder and warmongering and lots of blood on his hands, so much so that he wasn't allowed to build the temple, even though he wanted to. Uh, that's why Solomon, his son, is the one to build it. Um, and yet David is seen uh, historically by uh, religionists by, as, as a hero, as a biblical hero, um, which I guess he's introduced as that with the Goliath narrative, but his, his, um, his character changed once he got power. It, that power corrupts, as people say, absolute power corrupts absolutely. He got uh, absolute power and it didn't take long to corrupt him, but he still looked at um, overall as one of the righteous kings in the Bible. So anyway, back to Solomon and him having a conversation with God, which by the way, as we always, as we've been pointing out, contradicts what the gospel says in the gospels. Jesus himself tells us uh, they've not heard God's voice at any time, nor seen his form yet. Again and again, we read in the Old Testament about people hearing from God, sitting and talking with God, eating with God, wrestling, physically wrestling match with God and beating God in a wrestling match. So as always, believe what you want. There are articles of faith in my mind because 
I don't believe them. I believe it's written. I believe it because it's written that that's what the uh, it's what's, what's written. But do I necessarily believe that's God Almighty being wrestling with a human and letting the human not even letting uh, having the cheat to beat a human in a mess wrestling match? That doesn't make sense to me. But it is how it's written. So we're just reading what's written. Verse nine. Now, O Lord God, let your promise to David, my father, be established. For you've made me king over a people like the dust of the earth and multitude. So according to Solomon, they've already achieved that first promise that they were uh, given way back when, when Abraham was told his, uh, I'm paraphrasing, his descendants would be as the sands of the sea or the dust of the earth uh, and is basically the same thing. And apparently it's already happened because Solomon is praising God for making it already happen. So it's clear that it wasn't literally, uh, it wasn't it wasn't uh, meant to be taken literally that Abraham's descendants, at least the way it reads, if you're going to believe this uh, narrative in verse 9, um, that it was going to literally be as the sand of the sea, as in multiple trillions of grains of sand on the sea, probably even more than that, that there's going to be that many people descended from Abraham, but instead it's meant metaphorically that it'd be a multitude of people to descend from Abraham. And if, like I said, apparently that's already fulfilled because in Solomon's prayer here, his praise here, he's giving God thanks for um, making the people like the dust of the earth and multitude. So it's been achieved and it was not meant literally. It was meant metaphorically, if you're going to believe it. Verse 10, now give me wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people. Who can judge this great people of yours? So Solomon has been granted um, his heart's desire, whatever he wants to ask for, like a genie almost, which is from another religion, by the way, that um, uh, the Islamic religion has genies in it or a jinn in it. Great movie. One of my favorite movies, um, uh, The Wishmaster, if you've ever seen it. And there's more than one of them. There's a series of them. The first one was probably the best one um, that tap touches that. Uh, that sort of history of the jinn, genies, and the Islamic faith and all of that, and how they believe that there are uh, spirits, not necessarily evil, uh, or not necessarily benevolent, not necessarily malevolent, but just that just are, that will do things like that, that will grant you wishes, but then there seems to be a trick attached to them. Um, back to where we're at. So he's um, saying that he wants wisdom. That's his request so that he can uh, be a good judge, basically, over the people. Verse 11, then God said to Solomon, because this was in your heart and you've not asked riches or wealth or honor or the life of your enemies, nor have you asked long life, but have asked wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may judge my people over whom I've made you king. So now it seems God and again, I'm just going to say it's God or the Lord because that's how it reads. Whether I believe that's the case or not, we're just reading it. So God seems to be impressed with um, um, Solomon's request to not be selfishly asking for things for himself, but instead asking for wisdom that he'd be a good president, a good judge, a good leader of the people. So here's God's response. And again, it's saying it's God having this communication with Solomon, even though the New Testament tells us otherwise. Verse 12, wisdom and knowledge are granted to you, and I will give you riches and wealth and honor, such as none of the kings have had who were before you, 
nor shall any after you have the like. So Solomon's been given a promise, a guarantee that his request is fulfilled. He'd be the richest person ever in history um, before him or to come since him to modern times. Um, I guess that is entirely possible because um, the things he had then, they'd be worth many, 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 many times more than what they're worth. Uh, they'll be many, worth many, many times more now than they were, were worth back then. So even comparatively, if you were to compare them to someone like a Warren Buffett or Bill Gates or whoever else you want to think of, the Saudis, any other person that's filthy rich, they wouldn't, they'd pale in comparison if you took the riches that, say, Solomon had back then and brought them to modern times, then it would eclipse the wealth of anyone in modern times. At least that's the way it's described. Um, verse 13. So before we move on. So he's been granted his wish um, to have that wisdom to um, rule the people, to lead the people, but he's also going to be granted wealth also. Verse 13. So Solomon came to Jerusalem from the high place that was at Gibeon from before the tabernacle of meeting and reigned over Israel. So Solomon got his uh, face time with God. He's gotten uh, uh, to make his request, make his wish. And now he's returned from that high place to Jerusalem, same Jerusalem in modern times. Verse 14, and Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. So um, one last thing about that, he's acquiring wealth and um, strengthening his kingdom with his forces, his military, his army. Um, so one last thing about the wealth, it says his, his personal wealth. So the wealth of certain um, organizations may be great in modern times, um, or they may be wealthy with different stock options and things that make up their wealth. The wealth attributed to Solomon is his own, not the corporations, not the countries. It's his own wealth. Um, so that makes it even more wealthy than most people in modern times because most people's wealth, or at least many of the extremely wealthy people, of the ultra wealthy people, their wealth is tied up in paper, in different um, things that aren't necessarily tangible. Um so it seems like his wealth would be even more extremely above and beyond anyone's in modern times. Um, if we're to believe what's written here. So verse 15. Uh, also, the king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones. And he made cedars as abundant as the sycamores which are in the lowland. So the narrator here of Second Chronicles, unknown name, at least unknown to me, um, is saying that Solomon was so rich, that uh, so wealthy, that even precious metals like silver and gold became as common as stones. So if you want to take that literally, then that is extremely wealthy. If you consider, if you go outside of anybody's house in the uh, in any hood, any ghetto, or any uh, Beverly Hills type place, there's stones all over the ground. So if if it's literally as common as that, then yeah, that's uncomparable to anything since then. Since you can't just go around anywhere and find stones that are gold. Where according to the narrator here, there's so much precious metal um, 
that it's so common it's just like finding a stone um so that would be extremely wealthy society um verse 16 and solomon had horses imported from egypt and kiva the king's merchants brought them in kiva at the current price so he, he also had horses he was it was an equestrian um and um he had merchants going around making these acquisitions for him uh some from africa where the people were emancipated from because remember they were there for four plus centuries and for part of that time they were enslaved people um and then so they were liberated with the exodus story but still having interactions with the uh people there there's almost certainly roots there for the people uh, even though they've been emancipated from the enslavement they suffered there verse 17 they also acquired and imported from Egypt, a chariot for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. Thus, through their, through their agents, they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of, of Syria. So according to the narrator here, uh, Solomon, part of what Solomon was, was sort of a, a used car dealer. He's taking these cars, these carts, these chariots, that's what they are, and also with a horse, that's how they got around and selling them to the neighboring areas just like a car dealer would and that that's what helped increase his wealth he basically sold these vehicles at least according to the narrator our narrative to other kingdoms including the hittites an ancient um hit uh, an ancient people um uh, that's in history even beyond outside of the bible if you want to find out more about them and the kings of syria that's the same syria in modern times that the, has the president that recently gassed his people a few years back. He's still president there. Hasn't faced any um, dethroning or international rebuke for it, at least anything tangible. Sort of like this president, previous president of the United States. Still walking around free with all sorts of arraignments and arrests, but hasn't been uh, actually put into custody, put into handcuffs, had a mugshot, fingerprints. None of that's happened to him yet, even though he's... Uh, failed in civil court and facing all sorts of criminal criminal um charges so uh, i guess some things haven't changed when it comes to people have money but this was the last verse in this chapter this is where we're in this reading appreciate you joining me for the naked truth hope it's a blessing for you and that you'll join me again i love you and i'll see you next time peace be with you